News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC, the New Yorkers podcast for the newsroom by and for New Yorkers, the city. I'm Harry Siegel, here with Dr. Christina Greer. Hello. Hello, Harry Siegel. Hey, we've got a lot to discuss from another jam-packed week in New York City. But we got to start with two needless deaths. First, Black of the Owl was found dead this week, more than a year after capturing the hearts and imaginations of New Yorkers, after vandals freed him from a Central Park enclosure and sent him on the uh, dangerous life of a free city bird. More painfully, 27-year-old Fazil Khan, a data journalist of the Hessinger Report who'd previously worked on the city's Missing Them project, chronicling the lives lost here during the pandemic, died in still another fire sparked by an e-bikes with the Amayan battery charging in an apartment. Uh, this fire left multiple other people in critical condition. Mm-hmm. And finally, just speaking of e-bikes, a lawsuit filed by several chiefs accusing Laura Kavanaugh, the FDNY commissioner, appointed by Mayor Eric Adams, of various things, including age discrimination, was narrowed by a federal judge to remove, among other things, those chiefs' claims that the NYPD had allegedly been downplaying e-bike fires as a political measure, um, presumably because of the sympathy many New Yorkers have for the deliveristas who use them. Uh, Chrissy, Mayor Adams has proposed a new department to regulate these e-bikes, which have unquestionably been a boon to tech companies, the lots of New Yorkers who want deliveries, and to gig workers, including some of the newly arrived migrants, working often other people's papers to do this. Uh, I'm really saddened by the death of a very young, again, 27-year-old colleague. And every year now, we seem to set a, a new record with the number of e-bike deaths. And I, I love your thoughts on all this, as it seems like deliveries have transformed the cities in some way. And we're struggling to deal with what that means and the fires that have come along with that. Yeah. Well, first things first, I mean, my deepest condolences to Fazil's family and friends. I know most of his family's in India, but a lot of his friends here from his Columbia days and the work that he was doing at the city and so many other places. I just, you know, 27 years old in a fire is just a horrible way to start a Monday. Um, And I really, you know, extend my condolences to you guys at the city, especially. Um... You know, Harry, like, the whole point of government is to provide safety, security, and think through difficult policy issues for the citizenry. And I don't know what the mayor plans on doing with this commission, but it has to be done quickly because the number of fires with these e-bikes and, like, the lack of education about storage of the batteries – has just, as you said, increased exponentially, you know, say in the past year. I understand that, you know, we have definitely become a society, especially in cities, post-COVID lockdown, if you will, where we demand not just things delivered, but things delivered quickly. I mean, I use Seamless on a unfortunately, very consistent basis. Um, And I unfortunately use Amazon way more than I would like to. But when it comes to these deliveries, you know, folks want 
their food or whatever it is instantaneously, relatively speaking. And so we have this kind of series of underground slash barely overground economies where people have these e-bikes. I mean, that I've almost gotten plowed down on the sidewalk several times by someone riding an e-bike that can go at a nice little clip. So what do we do? Um, I don't know. I mean, banning them will just kind of, people still use them. It's just, they'll probably be less regulated. So if we regulate them, how do we then either educate people or create spaces where they can charge them that aren't in a building? We've seen time and time again um, that when they are charged in buildings, these horrible uh, instances can happen. I don't know. Maybe we should invite Laura Cavanaugh on to see what she's thinking about it. Because um, I know that no. the fires like are pretty vicious, you know, when when they're in these buildings. Uh, Laura Cavanaugh, for I mean, I know our listeners know this, but she's the fire commissioner for the city of New York. They go off sort of like bombs. There's tons of black smoke when doors are left open, which is what happens here, that rushes through and suffocates people. And they're, they're difficult to put out and they spread quickly. So they're, they're rough fires and they're one of a series of new things the NYPD has had to deal with. And like with the pandemic and the sheds, streets got tighter for like the big hook and ladders. You have had this whole new class of fires that spread spread quickly and have done terrible damage. When you're talking about core functions, you know, keeping people from dying in, in, in fires is very much uh, one yeah. of them. Yeah, I I just, I mean, it's it's so scary because also unless you do a spot check of your entire building for the vast majority of New Yorkers who live in apartment buildings, you know, it's like, do you go knocking on every single person's door? Like, hey, do you have an e-bike battery? And do you know how to properly store it and charge it? Um, because it seems as though the the folks who are the victims of this tend to be innocent folks who, you know, possibly didn't even know that an e-bike was in their building or e-bike battery was in their building. Um, in, in this case, I know there were like bikes chained, a whole number of them outside the building after it, it burned. Uh, the Times noted that in, in their coverage. And even if you do know, there's not a, a ton of uh, recourse at this point. And so if you think about where people who are doing deliveries live, because this isn't just all the lithium-ion batteries. It's really the ones on bikes that are given, driven around the city for 10 or with different riders like 24 hours a day minus charge time. Uh, and the the buildings, those are being stored in and sometimes charged in outlets inside. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think it also just reminds me of kind of what we're accustomed to as a city and as a nation. You know, when you go to London and like the, the tube closes at like, you know, 11 o'clock. She's like, wait, what am I supposed to do? And like, go home. <laughs> You're drunk. Yeah. Beat it. Right. Or, you know, there was a taxi strike when I was last time I was in, in Rome and you know, I went to the concierge and I was like, listen, I really need to get home. And can you call me a car? And he was like, we don't work 24 hours. He was like, no, I can't call you a car. There's no one coming at 12 o'clock at night to come pick you up. Like, that's not how we roll here. And so just thinking about the pace of this city and what our expectations are, you know, to order food at 2 a.m. is not astronomically obscene. You know, it is in other places, but not New York. And we have to recognize that there are people who 
who sacrifice their safety to bring food at 2 a.m. or whatever the delivery may be, and they're on bikes that need to be charged, and sometimes the education isn't there on how to do it properly, and, and neither is the space to do it properly. So hopefully the mayor and the fire commissioner and whatever this commission will be and whoever will be on this commission will think about kind of the multidimensional space of like the culture of New York City residents and what they're accustomed to, but also um, the people who are victims when these things go amiss. Yeah. And, you know, there's all these interesting enforcement questions that you don't want that on the backs of the drivers. And it's been unclear how to hold the very large tech companies that are not worried about your tip and for God's sakes, tip well and tip in cash if you can. Right. Um, right. Well, I mean, but I think that's the thing, though, Harry, because, I mean, the enforcement piece is really an important conversation in the sense that we don't want this to turn into an ICE sort of shortcut, right? Where it's just like, oh, so as we crack down on e-bikes, this is just a way for us to just, you know, have a, a big fishnet of swooping in and, and snagging potentially undocumented workers. So I don't know what enforcement looks like. And, I mean... Usually when these things happen, tech companies tend to get off scot-free and have very little repercussions. Or if it is, it's like a a wrist slapping compared to, you know, what they're responsible for. I don't know. Maybe Bradley Tusk has some thoughts for us. Oh, come on. I mean, he knows the tech world better than, than I. But, like, how do we hold them accountable for their products that have adverse reactions, um, for the citizenry, especially some of our most vulnerable populations. And and Bradley's bread and butter, as he writes about in his book, The Fixer, Daily News columns elsewhere, has been in how to allow tech companies to succeed and to grow in spite of government and bureaucracy and regulations. And there's a whole lot to recommend that model, and he's done very well with it himself. Um, and then you get into those core government questions, Chrissy, you were just bringing up of one, where where intercession is, is necessary, and two, how to competently do that in a way that you can actually enforce so you're not writing a, a half-meaningless law. Um, New York City legalized e-bikes not that long ago, and this still gets really confusing between e-bikes and mopeds and scooters and all that. Mm-hmm. You know, because it, it didn't want delivery guys to be criminals. But then how you're supposed to have some sort of uh, rules for them and for how people are charging their bikes, including, by the way, people living in migrant shelters where there's lots of these bikes outside is difficult. Uh, and, you know, if you want people to come here and work, you don't want to just take their necessary tools to make a living away. But you also have these broader safety concerns. It, it's an awful lot to balance. And this sort of gets us to Eric Adams and the challenge he has as a Democrat, as a former police officer, as somebody who, who likes to straddle these things. And so so he talks a lot about more enforcement, but fair enforcement. You know, he sort of goes back between the, the, there's a ghost migrant criminals and a, a wave coming and this is going to destroy New York City and we need to be decent to people who come here and how you're supposed to accommodate all that with the powers, vast but not unlimited powers that, that, that uh, a mayor in the city has 
is really challenging, especially in these periods of, of rapid change and transformation. Almost 20 years ago, I was in Buenos Aires, where there were bikes and scooters on the streets everywhere. And it was uh, like, wow, it's tough to cross here. And you can sort of feel like, man, this is coming. And I was driving in a car with, with uh, I was in a fellowship, uh, the wife of one of the fellows uh, who was just driving, would hit these traffic circles and there were no yield signs or anything. And there's bikes going through and cars going through and no openings in the traffic. She just does not take her foot off the gas and, you know, noses her way in. And I'm holding on to the front of the car. Don't think I turned to her. I'm looking straight ahead, sort of petrified. I'm like, who yields? And she says, the weak. And, you know, that's obviously, that's not the city we want, but but how you regulate your way to something different, like, you know, create actual rules of the road is super complicated. I, I do want to talk with you for a minute about Tish James, because she's been having quite a run since last I've, I've been on the pod, having missed a week. Yeah. I mean, listen, talk about someone who should be blasting DJ Khaled, all I do is win. I mean, what a week. You know, not just, I mean, I don't know if you saw that she tweeted out the the dollar amount, including, you know, back taxes and all this other stuff that was like 400 million something, something. That's all she tweeted. So nice little trolling there. But then obviously with the NRA uh, getting a settlement for, uh, what is his, I'm blanking on his name, the French name, uh, the head of, the former head of the NRA. Oh, oh. Wayne Lapierre. Yes. I don't so, think it's pronounced that way, but... Lapierre. Um, so, you know, obviously the settlement against Wayne Lapierre, and that's been a long time in in the making as well. So, you know, I, I always find it fascinating that Donald Trump's biggest, you know, dig for Tish James, like, she ran for governor and she had to drop out. It's like, she's like, okay, yeah, I dropped out and I kept my job, won again, and here we are, you got to pay up. Um, it will be interesting to see. You know, I've been very clear, like, I don't think this man is going to pay. I don't think the man has the money to pay. But Tish James, in response to, I think, people like me who were just like, when has this man ever paid his debts? You know, I mean, he always leaves people holding their bag. And I think preemptively, she's sort of answered that question by saying, listen, we'll just start taking assets if he doesn't want to pay. Um, I don't know how many assets he has. We know, like, a lot of the buildings with his name on it, they're not his buildings. He's just least, you know, the name so people could slap it on a building, but a lot of buildings aren't even his. So, you know, he's like possibly a thousandaire. I don't know. Um, you know, he's got this shell game that he's been hustling New Yorkers with for a really long time. You know, that old saying, like, if I owe the bank a million dollars, they've got me over a barrel. If I owe them a hundred million dollars, I've got them over the barrel. He's had so many banks over the barrel for so many years. And like only, I'm sorry, Harry, you know, only a white man can get this much credit and this much debt. Like, I can't walk into a bank and just like, I don't have the money. I know I didn't pay you last time and I'm broke, but hey, keep giving me money. And that's been his shell game the entire time. And we see this time and time again in America where it's like wealthy white men tend to be able to, you know, keep this hustle going in ways that other demographic groups just absolutely could never even imagine. So we'll see. We'll see if he has to pay up. Uh, we'll see how he pays up. We'll see if he actually, you know, show and tell time. Like, let's see these receipts if you actually have the money that you say you have. The uh, the classic Trump line from way back when, when he was uh, going broke in Atlantic City is uh, him and his wife at the time, Marla Maples, um, pass a uh, bum 
in New York, mm-hmm. and I quote here, Trump turned uncharacteristically wistful. That bum isn't worth a dime, but at least he's at zero, sighed the Donald. That puts him 900 million up on me. And, and this is that guy. His other big complaint prior to and since this $464 million judgment against Trump in the civil fraud case is one, hey, the banks didn't lose any money, so what's the crime? And two, related to that, Tish James ran on getting me, and now she's got me. And uh, this isn't fair, and it shows that the whole system is somehow uh, politicized if, if he's held to account. And, and the person I keep thinking about in relation to that, talking with people who take that line of argument seriously, even after the justice system has rendered a verdict and Trump has had a, a, a trial and due process and all that is Rudy Giuliani, who has, uh, I think, $146 million defamation verdict against him uh, that relates to claims he made on the basis of some utterly random video that two Georgia election workers were working to steal the election. Uh, coincidentally or not, those were uh, a pair of black women. The video is in any plain viewing, and again, the justice system has now reached a verdict on this, totally unremarkable. They're just collecting ballots and doing ordinary things. And he named these women. Uh, They got death threats. Uh, Their family members did. One of them said after the verdict, money will never solve all my problems. I can never move back into the house I call home. I have to be careful about where I go and who I choose to share my name with. I miss my home. I miss my neighbors. And I miss my name. And Giuliani spent this entire trial continuing to attack these women by name and uh, to say that they were involved in some vast fraud supposedly in 2020 that supposedly cost Trump the election. And so just to to, to the people who say, this seems uh, politicized and what are we going to do? And now every prosecutor is going to go after every person and that whole line of argument. I I just point to, to Giuliani as the queer end game to all that in which if you think there's some sort of justice system if you think prominent people can't just name random people make them into national figures who fear for their wives and, and not provide any evidence to back that account up I, I just ask what sort of system you want and if you still have any interest in a judiciary a democracy any of this it just uh it seems like we're getting pretty far down a very ugly road which, yeah. at least in my brain, leads us to Al Bragg and this bonkers circumstance in which you have the Maricopa County, uh, it's not district attorney there, I think it's a county attorney, uh, refusing to extradite a murder suspect here, saying she doesn't want to play political games in a murder case uh, with this guy who allegedly stabbed someone to death at a hotel in Soho last month. Of course, if you don't want to play political games, the way prosecutors generally work is you communicate with your counterpart about things like extradition. In this case, none of that happened. You had somebody acting in a highly partisan manner going directly to the press to attack Bragg, who's become this incredible lightning rod for all these controversies, even as the crime numbers painted. 
very low, even as you have these migrants who are involved in kicking the cops in Times Square, who the police lied about what led to that, putting that aside, because they're still kicking those guys. Police sources then lied about how they'd all fled and jumped bail and were just going to escape, and we don't even know who they are. These guys all end up showing up at their court dates. But Bragg somehow just endlessly ends up at the center of these things. We just had a gubernatorial campaign, quickly forgotten, but very real, where Lee Zeldin came within, I think, eight points of Kathy Hochul on a campaign where his signature promise was, I'm going to fire the just-elected Manhattan district attorney, very coincidentally, a black guy, as a starting point. And Chrissy, I just love your, your thoughts on all this, both within the New York frame and nationally, and why so many of these things keep coming back to brag and this idea that we live in some sort of um, progressive created whole state here in New York, which certainly does not match my my lived experience or commute this morning. Yeah. I mean, but we know that ever since Al Bragg got elected, you know, Donald Trump and sort of his supporters have used him as this proxy of, you know, this Black man will turn New York City into a hellscape and it'll just be crime-ridden, as though it's Alvin Bragg's job or responsibility or he has that power to do so. And so that's always been kind of the trope that the Republican Party has used. Like, he's another proxy for them, especially when it comes to crime, because that's how Republicans sort of frame not just Black leaders, but, you know, cities, because that's where people of color are, by and large. Um, and sort of big D democratic policies. So he's turned into this proxy for like, well, everything's dangerous, right? I mean, and that's, I mean, that's essentially the platform, right? We know that Republicans in Congress haven't really worked on the inclusive policies. The policy is fear-mongering. So if you can say, well, I'm not even going to extradite a criminal because he'll just go off scot-free. Since when? Like, I mean, it's not. I mean, we talk about sort of reality versus perception all the time on the podcast. The numbers are the numbers. So, like, if crime is down, it's down. And Republicans can't sort of circle that square. So, it, you know, and, and they're not interested in gun policy. Like, you know, for all these, you know, all the hand-wringing about crime and safety, it's like, well, you guys aren't interested in sort of taking guns off the street. So what do you want to do? And what you want to do is just blame this Black man who's in charge of Manhattan. Not even New York City, right? Just Manhattan. Not Brooklyn, not the Bronx, right? Not Queens, not Staten Island. Um, literally one borough of the five uh, to say he's the proxy for all things being unsafe. And, and what's up with his uh, Trump suit, which now seems to be prosecution, rather, at the front of the line? Does the, I mean, how does that play into this as, as well as the usual fear mugging? Yeah, I mean, the fear monger is always going to be the fear monger. I don't know where that suit is. You know, like, I need to sort of brush up on that. I mean, I feel like... It's headed toward trial. It's headed toward trial. It seems to be first because of procedural delays. And this has always been Trump's game well before he got into politics. is just slow stuff down as long as possible. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, well, look at Georgia. running for president. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, he's got enough jurisdictions, right? He's got D.C., he's got New York State, he's got New York City, he's got Georgia. I mean, he's got a lot in his hands. I always just, you remember we talked about this like a year ago when people were like, why isn't Bragg prosecuting him? Everything, you know, hurry up. It's like, first of all, it's the former president of the United States. This isn't something that you roll into trial if you aren't prepared, right? You shouldn't roll into trial if you aren't prepared for anyone, but you definitely can't do it if it's the former president of the United States. And we know that Donald Trump is a wily, slippery one. So 
as I always say when it comes to, say, like the DOJ, it's like by the time the DOJ comes, and it may be a long time, right? Eric Adams knows he's sitting on the bench waiting for them to come or not come, right? But it's like if they are going to come, it's going to be in their own time because they've done due diligence and they don't come if they're going to miss. So if this is taken a long, quote unquote, a long time, what is time, right? What is time? It's COVID. So it may be a long time for what other people want, but the laws of justice or the wheels of justice turn at the pace that they need to turn. And like for a lot of us, it feels like it's taking forever, but you can't go half-ass it. Like I think a lot of people would much rather the borough of Manhattan come uh, with all of the receipts intact as opposed to just rushing for some arbitrary deadline because people who don't like Trump want it to just sort of be done. Now, do I think it's taken all these various jurisdictions taken a very long time? Yeah, they have. Longer than I personally would like. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a legal scholar either. But we also have to recognize how unprecedented this is. This is a former U.S. president. We've never had someone who's been so egregious and blatant with like, let me just go criming. Me, family, and friends. Decades long. Let's just do it. So, I mean, to unravel all that has occurred with this one particular man and all the people in his orbit takes time. Stay tuned, listeners. That seems like an excellent closing note. Um, again, my deepest sympathies to uh, Fazil Khan's family and uh, colleagues and loved ones. It's just a terrible thing. I don't think there's any wonderful perspective to have on that with a uh, a 27-year-old in Hamilton Heights at his home uh, losing his life in this fire. For anyone who'd like, the family has a uh, ask for uh, donations in his memory. Um, and you can go to everloved.com slash life dash of slash Fazil, F-A-Z-I-L dash Khan, K-H-A-N. To make this, that's a Everlove search for Fazil Khan. F-A-Q. FAQ NYC is headquartered at The City, a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to hard-hitting journalism that serves the people of New York. You can find it all freely available to everyone at thecity.nyc. And you can chip in to support that work if you'd like to at thecity.nyc slash give. The podcast also receives support from PT Knitwear, an independent bookstore, cafe, and event space on Manhattan's Lower East Side, with a podcast studio that can be freely reserved for community use. FAQ NYC is also an affiliate of the Colin Powell School at CUNY City College, where I am one of the Moynihan Public Scholars inaugural fellows. And the pod is an affiliate of the Flaming Hydra Newsletter, a collective of 60 writers and artists, including Harry Siegel, our executive producer, delivering a cooperatively owned new newsletter to your inbox that you'll actually want to open. See more and subscribe at flaminghydra.com. Thank you to our engineer, the imitable Adam Kamara, and thank you, dear listener, for joining us and making it this far. Be kind, be cool, be warm, and we'll be back soon with more.